I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, and we'll be thinking about this in connection to Lord's Day 4 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And just a quick little recap to, as to where we are in the Catechism. Uh, we're in the first part in which we come to know how great our sin and our misery are. And we had first looked at Psalm 107, where the psalmist surveys the children of man wherever they may be found throughout the world, specifically as they are found apart from the Lord. Um, separated from him and living in their sin and their misery. We saw how they are hungering and thirsting on death's bed at their wit's end, and all that they have apart from the Lord is but sin and misery. And yet God has begun to gather those out of their sin and their misery to bring them back uh, to himself. We'd seen also uh, last week in Luke 3 and Luke 4 Uh, The reason, kind of unraveling the mystery, why the children of man were found in sin and misery, why they were out um, apart from the Lord, and that we had drawn um, our attention back all the way to Adam, uh, the one who had sinned against the Lord and in him brought about a great fall to humanity, so that in Adam we are separated from the Lord. And now here in Lord's Day 4, we're going to be thinking about various ways that Our own minds and sinful minds often will try to avoid and evade uh, the basic conclusion that God must judge our sin. The basic conclusion that God, on account of our sin, must judge it with eternal punishment. And so Lord's Day 4 is going to provide us with various questions that we might ask to sort of, again, evade that basic conclusion. And so now we're going to turn first to 2 Peter chapter 3 in which Peter himself reminds us that in these last days, there will be those who will deny any coming judgment on account of sin. And we'll see how Peter uh, deals with such scoffers as well. So 2 Peter chapter 3, we'll read the first 10 verses. Actually, we'll read the first 13 verses. This is the holy and the inspired word of God. Peter writes, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring you up, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, 
waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So far from God's holy word. We're going to turn now to the Catechism, Lord's Day 4, in the back of the Trinity Psalter Hymnal. You'll find that on page 873. So as three questions are there uh, for us, I'll read the question and we'll respond together with the answer. So question nine. But doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? No. God created man with the ability to keep the law. Man, however, at the instigation of the devil, in willful disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Question 10. Will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry with the sin we are born with, as well as our actual sins. God will punish them by a just judgment, both now and in eternity, having declared... Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. Question 11. But isn't God also merciful? God is certainly merciful, but he is also just. His justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. So far from our catechism. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Peter uh, pens uh, this letter for us, likely his, the final letter that he wrote to the church before he died. Um, earlier in chapter 1 of this letter, he speaks of his reasons uh, for writing. He says this, that he intends to always remind you, verse 12 of chapter 1, I intend to always remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. So the message he's bringing to them is one that they've already heard, And yet scoffers are coming into the church and will come into the church who begin to cast doubt upon the apostolic message. And so he says, I think it right as long as I am in this body, in this tent he refers to his own body as, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my tent of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. So Peter, think about the situation that's taking place in the early church. They had the apostles. Uh, Those who were eyewitnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of his person and of his work. And for a time, they served the church, but the apostolic office was soon to fade away and be done with, like with the dying of the apostles. And so Peter, as he's soon to die, um, writes this letter for them, reminding them what is of first and utmost importance. Specifically, as it came to the promise that was delivered through the apostles from the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in chapter 1, verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. So in our own day, in the days of Peter as well, myths came about. They were ahistorical. They had no real roots in history, but they were man-made, fashioned by man's own mind. And so Peter's saying we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so Peter, as he reminds the church, as he's soon to depart from them, that Jesus Christ, through his apostles, promised to come again. 
The word for his coming there in chapter 1, verse 16, is a word that you might be familiar with. It's Jesus' parousia. It's a coming of a great king or a dignitary uh, to, to reckon accounts with his people, to come and arrive in a city. And Peter is saying that the great king, the Lord Jesus Christ, has promised to come again. And he has promised to come again in power. And Peter here now in chapter 3 is highlighting that day of Christ's coming in power. The day of the Lord as the prophet spoke of it and how Peter here speaks of it as well. A day of both salvation for God's people as their enemies will on that day be finally vanquished. But also a day of judgment in tandem with that for the enemies of God. A day of salvation and a day of judgment when the King of Kings, Jesus Christ himself, comes again in power. Now, Peter recognizes that that message is one that will be mocked and will be scoffed at, not only in his own day, but throughout, as he refers to, the last days. The message that we believe of Christ coming again is one that will be scoffed at, Peter says, between Christ's first coming and that day when he comes finally again. And Peter is saying that in the last days, Knowing this, verse, uh, if you notice, look down with me, chapter 3, verse 3, uh, verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And so what Peter is saying, again, is not just something that, that is exclusive to his own day, but something that will, uh, will appear throughout the last days. And we don't have the time to fully flesh this out, though we've talked about this before and you might be just familiar with it. The last days that Peter's referring to are the days between Christ's first coming and his second. We are living in the last days. Peter is speaking into our own context as the church here living in the last days. And so, the promise of Christ coming again to judge the living and the dead and to bring his people and usher them into eternal life is one that will be scoffed at as Peter um, anticipates um, throughout these last days. And so as we think about that reality, also in light of the catechism, right, this idea of eternal punishment, a day of judgment, and the various questions that are asked in the catechism to sort of evade the basic conclusion of that, uh, we want to think about Second Peter in that regard under uh, three points. First, um, ways of evasion, so an evasion. Uh, secondly, an exhortation. And then thirdly, uh, we want to think about an exposure. So firstly, an evasion, secondly, an exhortation, and thirdly, an exposure. And so firstly, in verses 1 through 7, we see the way in which the scoffers seek to evade the basic conclusion of the apostles that Jesus Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead. It says there in verse 4, uh, what exactly the scoffers will say in response to the apostolic message? What will the scoffers say to cast doubt upon the apostolic promise through Christ of Christ that he will come again in power? Well, Peter gives us a kind of representative statement, a summary of what it will look like as they bring into question the promise. They will say, verse 4, where is the promise of his, of his coming, of his parousia, of his return? And they give this reason. As they themselves sort of look out around the world around them and they see that much time has passed and they see things continuing as they always were. Notice, they say, for, the middle of verse 4, it says, 
For ever since the fathers, likely referring even going all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the early uh, fathers of the people of God, now for a couple thousand, maybe even more than that, of years, right? Ever since then, the fathers fell asleep, the promise given to Abraham, all of these things, right? Ever since then, long ago, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation, right? And in many ways, we ourselves can sort of see their argument, right? We've recognized that evil has continued... God's people have continued to be oppressed. The message of Christ has continued to be brought into doubt and questioned for a long time. We can look back and say, well, things have always been like this. Even since the days of Abraham, where they had conflict with the Canaanites, the Israelites having the same conflict, and into our own day with the tower of, uh, well, cities of Babylon, the cities of man, bringing uh, God's promises and the promise of Christ's return into question. And, And again, we can kind of see their argument. But the problem, the problem with their arguments we're going to see, is that they begin to read history, the, the workings of God as they unfold in history, and they begin to read nature around them apart from God's word. They see things continuing as they always were and assume that things will always continue as they always were. And they begin to misapply eternity, permanency, to the present order of things rather than believing that God will come to bring an end to this age and bring about a new eternal state. They begin to misapply permanency and eternity to the present order of things because they do not read the workings of God in history and in nature through the lens of God's word and his promises. They've separated God's word and said, let's just think about nature and history on its own, apart from anything that God has said. What does it look like? Well, it looks like just a cyclical way of things. Things just continue as they always were. But Peter reminds them and begins to um, attack and, and counter their own evasion to God's promise by reminding them of what God's word has told us about what has taken place. He says there in verse 5 that they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Right? That's nothing that man could observe when God created the heavens and he separated and the earth and he separated the waters and above and the waters under the earth. And yet that is what God's word tells us that God has done. But not to think then, well, if God has created this world, if God has made all things, then why should we expect him to destroy it? Why should we expect him to purge it? And Peter says, by the same word that created, by the same word um, that um, organized and ordered the creation, he says there, by the same word, the heavens and the earth, or rather going back a verse to verse 6, that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. That God has once judged the earth. That God once did bring about a decreation of his creation. And the waters that he once separated were brought back upon each other to destroy man upon the earth during the days of Noah. And so Peter draws the same conclusion on the basis of what God has done in the past, recorded for us in Scripture. He says, verse 7, But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment 
and the destruction of the ungodly. And Peter's going to go on to explain that um, later as well in terms of um, the heavens shaking and passing away and the earth itself being purged and cleansed by fire. Now, a lot could be said about this uh, passage. Um, There are those who have seen this as a mere metaphor, um, and likely that's part of what Peter is getting at here. Uh, The the process of something like an alloy or a a, a precious metal being put through fire to be purged and cleansed so that what emerges is, as Peter says, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, no longer unrighteousness, but has been cleansed and purified. But others, as... um, with that in mind as well, um, good theologians such as Gerhardus Voss and others have seen just as the water was literal, just as the water to cleanse the earth was literal, so too we might expect the fire to be literal as well. And yet what emerges is a new creation cleansed and purged. And so the basic idea here that we're kind of getting at is that Peter is saying that in the last days, scoffers will come bringing uh, the promise of Christ into disrepute. They begin to cast doubt upon the promises of God, specifically as they begin to attribute permanency to the present order of things and not seeing the world around them through the lens of God's word. It's a very uh, issue that continues to exist and ways in which fallen man continues uh, to evade the basic conclusion that Jesus Christ, the one who has come, the one who has been raised from the dead, the one who is seated at God's right hand, is coming again as he promised. And as his apostles were eyewitnesses of that reality. And so various ways of evading uh, come through um, this age that we need to be uh, aware of. The second thing is that Peter then, in light of that, gives an exhortation to us as the people of God. In light of this reality that will persist throughout the last days, Peter then gives this exhortation to you. He says, do not overlook this one fact. Right? Earlier he had said that the scoffers, in verse 5, deliberately overlook this reality. But now he's exhorting you saying, do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is, is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so what Peter does here is he's exhorting the church, one, to be, to be um, mindful of this basic principle that God is not one who operates according to man's own time, Right? With the Lord, one day is is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. God exists as one who is eternal. Not the present order of things, but God himself is the one who is permanent. God himself is the one who transcends the basic orders of time. He's not one who is subject to time. He's not one who is subject to time in that he must submit himself to the basic outflowing of things in history. And therefore, his plan must fall according to man's own calendar. No, God is one who exists outside of time, and yet one who is able to relate to the creatures, even us, in time, without himself changing. And so he says then that as the Lord is one who has his purposes that transcend time itself, he says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. Right? He's saying, therefore, that as the false teachers look out and see things continuing as they always were, They draw this conclusion, therefore, why should we expect judgment? 
Therefore, the, the continuing of things as they've always been is evidence against any coming judgment. But God is saying instead that we must read his patience and we must read his slowness to come again, not as evidence against judgment, but as evidence of his heart that his people should not perish but reach repentance. That this is a day not of one in which we ought to then ignore the promises of God to come again and of his coming judgment, but rather one that we must take them serious and recognize that today is a day of salvation. The patience of God is meant to lead us to repentance. And therefore, as we look at history and the continuing order of things and the seeming slowness of God from our own perspective, we're not to grow um, tired and we're not to grow weary, but instead we're to recognize that today is a day of salvation and that God will fulfill his promise when his people come in. The fullness of his people are brought in to salvation in his name. And so the Apostle Peter is exhorting us not to overlook this fact, not to be caught up with the scoffers as those who attribute permanency to the present order of things, but rather to be those who have our minds set upon the kingdom of Christ, which Peter in chapter 1 verse 11 says this, that there will be for you as the people of God who have trusted in Jesus Christ, he says, there will be richly provided for you entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is of permanence? What possesses eternity? Not the present order of things, but rather the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. I might have made this point in the past, but I always find it interesting when reading Second Peter that of all the adjectives Peter could have used to describe this kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? A glorious kingdom, a righteous kingdom, a beautiful kingdom, a precious kingdom. Right? There's so many words that Peter could have chosen to describe the kingdom, and yet here he chooses to speak of it as the eternal kingdom because he wants to remind the church that the present order of things is not permanent. And when we fall into that lie, then we begin to scoff at and forget that Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead that all accounts will be reckoned on a day that is coming, the day of the Lord. And so Peter wants us to see the present order of things as temporary. It's why, as we mentioned earlier, when he speaks of him putting off his body, he speaks of putting off his body as a tent. He uses the Greek word for tent to speak of his own body, to say that his present existence here is one that is mobile, one that is not rooted, but one that is headed, heading towards the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we think about the way in which we are to be guarded against a way of living that does not take into account the coming judgment of God, we're reminded by Peter that we must not attribute permanency to the present order and think that things will just always be as they are. But instead, we're to only attribute permanency to the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. This present order will come to an end. This present way of living in which it is possible to rebel against the Lord and it's possible to fight against his ways, to rage against his purposes. But a day is coming when God will no longer endure such disobedience and such unrighteousness. A day is coming when Christ, the King, 
will exercise his justice over the whole face of the earth. And that day, then, is one that we ought to live in light of. That is what Peter is exhorting the church uh, to do. And finally, much more could be said, but finally uh, we have Peter explaining what will take place on that day in our third point, the exposure. This is the word that Peter uses at the end of verse 10. He says, the works that are done on it, done on the earth, on that day, will be exposed. All that has been done on this earth, all the unrighteousness, all the injustices, every careless word spoken, all of it will be exposed. And Christ as one who is great and powerful, one who is the very Son of God, is able to bring all of those things into the light. The fire will come to remove all that conceals, all that hides, and what will, be remain, what will remain is nothing which man can hide behind. It's like Adam and Eve naked in the garden with nothing to conceal themselves before the Lord. And on that day, all things, as it says, will be um, exposed. And Peter, again, is reminding us then to live in light of that day. And therefore, as we think about that day, one, as those who are in Christ, as those who have trusted Christ, we have no need to fear that day. And we have every great uh, reason to anticipate and expect that day. Because it's Christ, the very one who stood in our place in the cross, the one who died for our evil works done, will be the very one who will judge us. And therefore, we have no reason to fear that day if we are in Christ, if we have trusted in him and we have followed after him. But for those who have continued in their sin, those who think themselves like the city of Jericho, who hear of the coming judgment, who know that the wrath of God is impending and on its way, and yet rather than repenting like Rahab, hide themselves behind their walls thinking that they might keep them safe. But on that day, all the works of man will, will be Exposed. The walls that we have put up will come down. And therefore, what this calls us then to do is to repent, as God had said, right? God is patient that not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. Therefore, what ought to be our response? But to repent before the Lord of our sins and to trust in his Savior, in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who can protect us. As Rahab sought safety as she, uh, in the people of God and she confessed the name of the Lord, so too those who confess Christ, those who repent of their sins and trust in him, will find safety on that day. And it's only those who are in Christ who will find such safety. And so Peter not only then gives us uh, what is coming in terms uh, to motivate us and to move us, then to look to Christ and and, and not be uh, drawn away by the scoffers, but he also holds up before us in our final point here, um, the the new heavens and the new earth as, as the great reward, as that which God's people are heading towards. He says, verse 13, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. When Christ comes to judge the living and the dead, Christ comes to expose the works of man done on the face of the earth, it's then that what will remain is righteousness, a new heavens, a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And those who have trusted in Christ, those who have been the recipients of his righteous saving work, as he says in chapter 1, verse 1, then we too will, will have full entrance 
into that creation, that new creation. It's that very creation that parallels what Peter said earlier. There will be provided for you entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's important for us to always keep in mind and, and, be, uh, and remember that the kingdom is so desirous, the new heavens and the new earth are so desirous and so great because it's there that we come into the full embrace of our Savior without end. It's there that it's the kingdom, not just of eternal glory of lasting, but it's the kingdom of our Savior, the kingdom of our Lord. And for those, as the psalmist says, are in whose hearts are the highways to Zion, we long to be there to be with our Savior. And therefore, we ignore the scoffers, and therefore, instead, we hold fast to the promise and believe that Christ is coming again. He will usher us into that new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells, and there we will enjoy our God forever and ever. And so as we've uh, thought through the various ways in which we might evade that, the, 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 the basic coming, the basic promise that Christ is coming again, we are to heed Paul's exhortation to not overlook the promise and instead anticipate that coming day, the day when Christ will be all in all. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you that you have made known to us uh, what is to be, what is to come. Father, we know that Christ, our King, is today King of kings and Lord of lords, that he is the Son whom you have set up on your holy hill. And as such, according to his identity as the King, he must come again. And so, Father, we anticipate that day and ask, Lord, that until then you would continue to gather uh, your people, granting them repentance, that they might find safety and refuge in Jesus Christ, And that also, Lord, you would uh, put before our eyes um, by faith uh, that coming kingdom, that eternal kingdom, even a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And may we look forward to that day and be able then to consider ourselves like the Apostle Peter as those who today dwell in tents, but one day will dwell in that eternal kingdom. And so, Father, keep us faithful until that day. Strengthen us by your grace, and may the hope of that uh, be Um, our shield uh, before those who would scoff against the promises of Christ and his return. And so we, Lord, we pray that that day would be hastened, that he would come again soon. We pray this in his name. Amen.